Do you ever find yourself confused when it comes to health and fitness? Have you been searching relentlessly on the most effective ways to achieve your fitness-related goals, only to find yourself even more frustrated? Well, we've got you covered. It's time to learn from the best, shorten your learning curve, and truly understand how to achieve your goals without spinning your wheels and wasting precious time. Welcome to the Minimum Effective Dose Podcast. Welcome back to the Minimum Effective Dose Podcast. My name is Mike Perry, and I'm here as always with my good friend and amazing overall guy, Brett Jones. Brett, what's up, buddy? Why, thank you, sir. And back at you. Well, you know, last time I don't think I introduced you the right way. And, you know, you sent me a bunch of text messages that were mean with a lot of, you know, nasty things. No, I'm just kidding. Um, guys, we're here. We're, we're goofing around. We're having a good time. But today we're going to talk about something that, well, well, Brett and I, we've been, uh, we have some experience on this topic and we're going to talk about corrective exercise and it's sort of become kind of a, a cuss word in, in the world of fitness because so many people hate it. And there are aspects of corrective exercise that I dislike. And I'm sure there's some things that um, Brett dislikes as well. But at the same time, I think, I think the biggest issue is, is people really don't know what to do and how to make the right decisions. So their clients have an optimal outcome, because I think people chase things that maybe they don't need to chase. But I think a lot of it is just decision-making in general and, and making sure that you're not trying to fix everything and trying to determine what is, what is acceptable movement. Because at the end of the day, we want people to, to move well and to move often, but at the same time, we are not looking for perfection because it does not exist. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So, you know, I've been working for, for functional movement systems for probably maybe six or seven years. Brett, how long have you been with FMS? 2006. Okay. So there's, there's some math involved. 16 so years, 26 Six, years, 20, 16 years, 16, years. 11, okay. 11. Anyways, great number. Um, so yeah, we're going to talk about that uh, a little bit and let's start out with this, Brett, when you were early on working with gray and you guys sort of, I don't want to say coined the term corrective exercise, but listen, you guys are the ones that probably made it as popular as ever. So how did that come about? Like where, what was the thought process through that? So I'm, I'm going to take one step back and then hop right on, on that question of, of how that happened. Because really when I got involved with gray in 2006, I had taken the, one of the original, if not the original FMS workshop in like late 99, 1999. Um, so I'd been exposed to the, to the screen many, many years before. And, um, you know, in the original manual, there were three corrective drills. So, okay, I'm going to answer your question first, then I'm taking a step to the left. So where did that name and where did that concept come from is you found something in the screen that you needed to correct. So corrective exercise, we, it's, it's kind of like Indian clubs. We, what are we going to call this? This is movement number one. What are we going to call the next one? Um, movement number uh, two. <laughs> so like we're, we're not overly creative, right? Um, so uh, we literally said, we found something in the screen we need to correct. Here is a corrective drill to make that thing better. And I think the reason <clears throat> corrective exercise became such a, a bad word or became so poo-pooed within the, within the industry was doing a corrective drill 
in my mind, assumes you have some sort of baseline for how that person's moving. You're not just seeing something wrong in an exercise and then saying somebody needs a corrected drill. You have a baseline for how they move. And that leads you in the direction of saying, this is below the minimum and this is above the minimum. I don't need to worry about that. Let's worry about this thing that's below the minimum. So when you don't have a baseline or you're making up your own, um, what are you correcting? Like, I understand why corrective exercise will get a bad, a bad rap and a bad name because you don't have a baseline. You have nothing to direct your efforts. So yeah, you're going to get frustrated because you're, you're just chasing your tail. Um, when the screen was developed and, 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 you know, gray and the gang boiled down the, you know, look at human movement. There's a lot of options when they boiled it down to these kind of seven essential things, plus the ankle screening, ankle clearing. Now um, it's, it's a good boiled down list of minimums. And so if you don't have a baseline, yeah, you just chase your tail. And then you end up thinking, well, corrective exercise doesn't work. Well, okay. A, you don't have a baseline and B. Um, <clears throat> and I say this as gently as possible. Uh, you might not be that good at coaching the drills or using the, the techniques because um, it's not your standard. Typically it's not your standard chest up cue that you're able to just drop on people um, which I think is the most overused and abused and kind of crappy cue that, that gets you hear that all the time, head up, chest up. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm ranting now, so I'll just, uh, I'll just, let us get, back I like it. I'm sent, I'm sensing some anger. So like, I want you to, I want you to be the old guy telling the kids to get off their lawn right now. That's, <laughs> that's really what I'm going for right now. Um, but no, 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 I, you know what I, and, and I completely understand where you're coming from because, uh, you know, the FMS has been one of those systems that people started off and they were like, I love this. And then everyone's like, it's the worst thing on the planet. And uh, then there's a lot of people in between. And I think the biggest issue people have is, is they don't understand the system. They really don't. And they don't understand the point of the system, because I think a lot of the research out there regarding sort of the FMS in general, um, you know, there is some great research out there, but at the end of the day, it's, 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 it's research and it is what it is. And one of the things that we've both learned by speaking with people that do research is, one of the things that we're really trying to do with, with research specifically on corrective exercise is identify the trends, right? To see, you know, sort of what is the majority of this information telling us. And, and I think that's one of the things that people just forget about is, is nothing is perfect. We're not working with math where it's a black and white equation. We are working with humans and there are so many gray areas when you're working with humans and there are so many uh, multifactorial aspects of their lives that we just have to talk about because, um, everybody's coming from a different journey, a different background, a different lifestyle, a different job. And uh, I think we really need to, to slow it down a little bit and identify each individual and not just assume this and that. So let's talk about lifestyle a little bit. Um, I, I think one of the biggest reasons why people do not, you know, move well is, is because of the way that they're treating their body day in and day out. And their lifestyle is going to absolutely, um, change the way that they move. If you sit all day, right? The said principle, specific adaptation on imposed demand. If you sit all day, your body will start to change the way you move to get you better at sitting. The body is all about efficiency and even compensation. And compensation is not necessarily always a bad thing, by the way. But if you do something repetitively over and over and over again, your body will start to adapt to get you better at that. 
And that is why if someone sits all day, they're not going to move so well, right? It's just how it is because their body's saying, hey, listen, you're doing this eight to 10 hours a day. I'm going to make some changes from a, it could be from a neurological tone standpoint. Um, over time, it could be even anatomical changes. But uh, I think people don't realize that what they do day in and day out is going to shape the way they move. It's not what they're doing at the gym three days a week for an hour. Absolutely. And if we blow out that lifestyle conversation, uh, we get into a lot of different things. Hydration. Um, one, of the, one of the studies that came out of uh, uh, the FMS's work with the military, and this is, this is in the last couple of years, they had a group of soldiers that they had screened previously, uh, who then went on one of the training missions uh, where we basically knew or the researchers basically knew that they were going to come back dehydrated and with a lack of sleep. <laughs> uh, th about 30% worse movement. They dropped on average three or more points off of their FMS score uh, because they were tired and they were dehydrated. Um, it has significant impact. So if you're one of those people that, you know, you, you suck on coffee through most of the day and then you, you know, have a couple of um, adult beverages at night and then you go to bed, you're dehydrated. Um, you know, one of the things post-cancer treatment with the decrease in saliva production, xerostoma, if you want the uh, clinical name, um, is I drink a lot of water <laughs> during the day. I sip on a lot of beverage and um, it, it makes a difference. You know, I'm, I'm better hydrated. I think I've ever been in my life. And, uh, I, I think it's, you know, it, it's, it definitely makes a difference. So we got to talk about hydration. We got to talk about sleep. If you're low on sleep, going to impact your movement. We got to talk about nutrition. If your diet is less than optimal, um, or you're eating things that are irritative to your system, that's going to have an impact. Um, you know, just all of those things need to be considered. Stress needs to be considered. If you're in uh, a relationship where you're having relationship stress, um, that is an emotional drain that absolutely shows up elsewhere. If you're in a, you know, if your work is stressful, um, you know, all of those things come home to roost and that combination of things. And we're going to talk programming later because I think that deserves its own moment in the sun. <clears throat> but there are all of these lifestyle things and habits that we tend to not think about from a training standpoint. And you mentioned, you know, the said principle and, you know, Gray's wonderful clarifier on that years ago was the organism's specific adaptation to the environment's imposed demands. If your mattress is bad and you're wondering why your sleep is bad and you keep taking melatonin thinking it's an organism problem when you need a new mattress, good luck getting better sleep. Because you're trying to tweak the organism and you need an environmental change. And conversely, uh, if you keep, and people do this with their programming and their exercise all the time, if you just keep trying different programs, but you're sleeping four hours a night, you're have a ton of, you're working two different jobs, you have a ton of financial stress and you're dehydrated, try all the different programs you want. You're, you're, you're tweaking the environment. You got to go after that organism. And so that clarifier to me within the said principle of the organism specific adaptation to the environment's imposed demands um, really helps uh, in, a, in a decision making process. Because now I can, if, if 
I'm wise enough in working with my, my clients and students to say, okay, lay it out for me. I need a, I need a, a hydration log. I need a, I need a dietary log. I need a sleep log. I need, you know, I need information on all of these different things because that's going to impact how you move and it's going to impact how we're going to program you. Absolutely. And identifying, is it an environmental, is it an environmental issue or an organism-based issue is going to be the first thing you need to do before you can develop a strategy to fix whatever it is you're trying to fix. Because like you just said, you could be, you know, you could be chasing, chasing the wrong thing. And maybe you, you were thinking that you needed more melatonin. And I see this all the time. I'll start with my five milligrams and I go to 10, then I go to 15, then I go to 20 and I'm still not sleeping well. It's not the lack of melatonin in your body while you're not sleeping. It's because you have a crappy mattress. And uh, I say it all the time. I'm like, people spend all this money on computers and they spend all this money on, uh, you know, massage guns and all of these other things, but they won't drop the money on a mattress, which is the piece of furniture that most people spend the majority of their time when they sleep. It's just crazy to me, but they don't think of it that way. And, uh, you know, it is what it is. Hopefully people will eventually learn, but, um, not everybody does. And, and here's the funny thing, right? We mentioned all of these different things, sleep, hydration, all of these different sort of topics, but notice we didn't talk about internal hip rotation. We didn't talk about ankle mobility that's coming. We'll, we'll talk about that stuff. But it's the big rocks versus the pebbles versus the sand. And, and if you've never heard the analogy of the jar of life, I highly recommend you, you look into that. And it was originally from a college professor. I do not know what college or what professor, but basically it's this simple analogy where he gets an empty jar and next to the jar is some big rocks, some pebbles and some sand. And he talks about, he puts the, the big rocks in and that is, you know, the big rocks in your life, your people, your family, your health. And then there's the pebbles, which is your job finances, all that other stuff. And then the sand is last. And the whole idea about this is that um, you want to make sure that you focus on the most important things first, the big rocks, and then focus on the sand last, right? But the problem is, is people, they invert that. They focus on the sand. And the problem is when you focus on the sand, and if you fill that jar up with sand first, you're never going to have any space for those big rocks. And I think people do that all the time, especially in the world of corrective exercise. And knowing that, uh, and we'll talk about it more here in the programming section, uh, knowing that your running mileage is about a third to maybe double what it should be, and you come in saying, I've got all these movement problems, I'm not worried about corrective exercise for you. I need to get your programming correct. Uh, if you're sleeping four hours a night and you're not hydrated and you've got all the stress, I I'm unconvinced you have a movement problem. Uh, I, I think I know you've got a lifestyle uh, or one or more lifestyle issues that are getting in the way. So, you know, having that uh, in your standardized intake and in, in the, in the way that you approach building a program for people is a real difference maker in, in really getting great results for people and moving, moving things forward. Yeah. You know what I think, too? I think a lot of people may not even know what it feels like to feel good. I think people assume that this is what it's going to be, right? It, and, uh, I, and I think you've said it several times. It feels good to feel good, right? And I think a lot of people are walking around feeling like rubbish all the time because they're not hydrated, right? They're, they're sipping on their energy drinks all day. Um, they're eating a bunch of crap. And maybe because of what they're choosing to eat, they've got some sort of unnecessarily infl unnecessary inflammation that is irritating their joints. And then it becomes a spiral. And I think one of the reasons why people don't exercise is because they feel like crap to begin with. 
And then they expect exercise to, to suck. They expect it to be painful and hard and they're going to go in and they're going to crush it and crush themselves literally. Uh, and uh, they have a bad experience. And, and sometimes it's not even something they can put into words. It just doesn't feel good. And so I, I don't know about you. I typically stop things that don't feel good. Um, yeah, it's, didn't, a, it's didn't a great idea. Have, I'm just who knew? I mean, who knew? Make a make a note. Make a note. And uh, if it fe- doesn't feel good, stop. Because um, even exercise, like to, I push pretty hard. I I have some pretty demanding sessions, but they feel good. You know, I'm not sitting there in pain trying to survive my session. I'm, I'm pushing my capacities and I, I'm doing work and there's a stress to that. There's a feeling to that, but I also enjoy that physicality. Um, I know the difference. I've felt bad. <laughs> and so <laughs> I know, and I know what feeling good feels like. So I want to feel good. So, yeah. And it, and it really seems like common sense stuff, but I think if you're not in this sort of world and you don't understand these things, it could be it could be tough to really understand and even comprehend because again, it's just like, you know, people are coming to us and, and again, they feel like crap. And, and you mentioned, they think they're just going to exercise and they're going to feel better. But a lot of the times um, they, they, they don't even enjoy it because they're coming in with, with this body that is neglected, right? It's like an old car and the oil hasn't been changed and it's never been cleaned up and never been taken care of. And then they expect to race it. And then what happens? Well, I tried exercising, but it just hurt me more. Was it the exercise or was it the fact that you were already driving down the highway with a clunker and all we needed was one tiny thing to derail it, right? And then you go ahead and you, you know, you, you end up crashing and then you're like, it was the exercise. I, I shouldn't exercise or it was, it was the squat. I shouldn't do squats because it hurt me. No, maybe it was the 20 years of beating the crap out of your body that was just compounding. And then when you decided to hop into some exercise, that was just the, uh, the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. So, I mean, the lifestyle is a big, big part of it for sure, but let's change gears a little bit, Brett, what's the difference between correct and corrective exercise? So if, if I am doing a couple of different definitions here in my mind, if I'm doing a corrective exercise, I am doing a drill or something to help improve as some sort of movement related metric or uh, standard uh, leg raise, ankle mobility, you know, things like that. If I'm doing an exercise to improve my physical capacity, uh, strength, endurance, power, whatever, um, that that's correct exercise. That's where that goes. So if, if I'm working on capacity, power, strength, performance, whatever, that's correct exercise. That's the realm there. If I'm trying to fix something movement related, then that's a corrective drill. Um, <clears throat> a, uh, what became popular of a um, few years ago, and I don't know if it still is cause I don't pay much attention. Um, <laughs> but what became popular a couple of years ago was this mindset that, uh, I don't need to, sc- I don't need a movement screen. I don't need corrective exercise. All I need to do is coach correct exercise and people will move well and good luck with that (laughs) um that's that's like saying that you're going to fix the car by driving it harder so the next (laughs) the next time you know the engine starts pinging and making noise just go drive it harder see if that'll do it put an f put put a formula one 
world champion race car driver in behind the behind the wheel, you're not going to get more correct technical driving than an, a Formula One world champion <clears throat> and see if that fixes the car. Just hire a Formula One driver, put them behind the wheel, and let them take your car on a nice hard drive. Because if technically correct performance is going to be corrective, that should do it. It doesn't. It never has and it never will. Is correct? Is coaching correct exercise important? 1,000%. I had somebody years ago say, well, you know, I have people that, you know, they get twos in their leg race, but they still don't know how to deadlift. And I'm like, how did those two things come together? Yeah, right. Like, well, why do you expect somebody to be able to deadlift and get a two on leg race? Two on leg raise just says they have the past the, the minimum baseline of hip mobility to where you can start teaching them how to deadlift. Mm -hmm. So, and then, so let's say I, I, I don't screen somebody. And the first thing I do with them is squat. Okay, great. Great choice. Uh, and I see valgus collapse. Well, is that cause they just have valgus collapse? Is it because of an ankle mobility issue? Is it because of a hip mobility issue? Is it because they can't maintain pelvis position because they lack lumbo, uh, lumbo pelvic uh, control? I don't know. Now I got to go back and try to, and now this is where you get people that have, you know, 20 different bands on them, trying to pull them in 15 different directions. And uh, they're trying to fix the squat as the, as the corrective drill. And why? Take the movement related stuff off the table first, run the screen, find that ankle issue before it's ever a problem in your technical coaching, clean those things up. Now, when I start to coach technically correct exercise and I see something happen that I want to improve within that drill, I can be reasonably confident that that's not a movement issue, that that actually, that will now respond to my technically correct coaching, cueing and, and, and work. Um, I just much prefer to keep it in a stepwise process of let's take the movement related stuff off the table so that when I'm coaching correct exercise, my cues are dropping into fertile soil as Gray used to refer to it because take seeds and drop it on concrete. Not going to, not going to get very far, cultivate some soil, uh, fertilize it, water it, make sure it's ready for the seeds. You get a crop. Yeah. So, so basically what you're saying is that poor movement is absolutely a barrier to skill acquisition. Yes, absolutely. Because I think a lot of people assume I get, I get to practice this, this technique. We see it a lot in jujitsu, right? We see it a lot where people want to try something and they're like, I had to get better technique. And I'm like, you can keep trying. Cool. Keep trying that technique. But one of the reasons why that technique's not working is because you can't get your body into that position to begin with. And that's where people don't understand the disconnect. I remember I was working with a couple of my fighters and we were talking about a triangle choke, which uh, for those of you that don't know what that is, it's uh, very similar to the Faber position, uh, flexion, abduction, external rotation, get their arm in, go around the neck, choke them out, blah, blah, blah. But you have to have really, really good. You have to basically own that Faber position. And a lot of people cannot, they have poor external hip rotation and they assume, oh, I'm just, I don't have good technique. Well, it could be that, but maybe you just, you're fighting yourself even before you're fighting your opponent. And that's one of the reasons why 
you're having issues. So it, it, it's, it may not be a technique issue. It could be a movement-based issue. And, um, you know, going back to the FMS, right. I think one of the biggest issues we see, and you talked about, you know, the, the, the idea of a straight leg raise and not being able to deadlift all the screen does and any basic, basic movement analysis. I don't care if it's, uh, the SFMA or if it's FMS or something else, the NASM model or, or whoever puts out something else, it's not telling us how well you have tech, tech. It doesn't tell us about your technical ability of certain things. It just tells us that currently you should have the movement competency. So again, if we do give you the right exercise with the right dosing, we should get a positive response. And that's really what it does boil down to. But too many people assume that if you move well in an unloaded fashion or with your body weight, you should be able to do all of these other things. And it's like, no, 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 no. Those are, those are highly technical things, right? Just because you can do an overhead squat with a, with a dowel and a heel lift does not mean you know how to catch a snatch. <laughs> it just does not mean that. And, and, and I think that's the stuff that people really, they forget about because I've seen it time and time again. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't tell us how they're going to look with a bar on their back. I know, like, I know Correct. the only way you're going to see how well they do with a bar on their back and, and wait for it is to put a bar in their back and see how it goes. It's, Ta-da. it's funny how that works, but I'm just amazed at the disconnect. It's like some common sense stuff, but people want to argue over things that don't need to be argued about because it's just simply common sense. And what it really boils down to is when it comes to corrective exercise, if you don't fix something or you don't improve someone's movement quality, whether it's a, a global movement pattern, like a squat or a lunge, or even if it's a local, like ankle mobility, if you don't improve it, it's not corrective. It's called a waste of time because nothing's changed. And I mean, how many, how many times have we've, we've made mistakes too, trying to improve certain things. And guess what? It's a bony block. I mean, Brett, tell the, tell the story about the, the internal hip rotation and the feet straight. <laughs> Can I talk about me again? Um, and I can you're gonna, also you're tell gonna anyways, so I'm just going <laughs> to feed you it and just let you go. And I'm going to take a 10 minute nap. No, I'm just kidding. Off you go. So uh, I'll tell a, I'll tell another story uh, where I started working with someone who had been working for over a year with a physical therapist and their trainer to try to change their ankle mobility. And I'm like, that's persistence. Like you've been trying for a year and you haven't changed it. They're like, nope. I'm like, okay, let's go get an x-ray. Like just, just for, for giggles, let's go, let's go take a picture. She's like, yeah, I did have club foot as a kid. I'm like, well, that could matter. Um, just throwing it out there. Yeah. So comes back and, and I, I fear that uh, this particular uh, student of mine will be listening to this podcast in the future. Um, so I'll probably get an email, but um, the, the x-ray of that ankle, the talus and calcaneus are so, kind of in their own unique position that you could give a piercing through that ankle and not hit bone. For, for those of you at home, that shouldn't be possible. Um, so mechanically, the idea of gaining ankle mobility is just not there. So use a, use a heel lift, do what you need to to work around it. You know it's not going to change. Keep what you got. For me, it was this journey of, you know, everybody was saying, do everything with your feet straight ahead and blah, 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 blah. So I gave it a try. And by the time I'd been working on it and trying to change my hip internal rotation, by the time I'm on my doctor's table, uh, and I, I can't even remember when this was, quite a few years ago, 
He's like, man, you, you look like my 80 year old clients that are ready for a hip replacement. Like what is going on with you? So we did an MRI arthrogram and it turns out I have really high alpha angle uh, um, heads to my femur uh, that causes a cam style uh, FAI. And so I have a completely torn right labrum. It's anterior labrum's gone. Uh, anterior superior labrum's torn with two paralabral cysts. And, you know, I've got some, a uh, little bit of change there. Um, but I picked, since I got rid of all that labrum, I now picked up a degree or two of internal rotation. So I got that going for me. So I got um, that going for me. What, what, what movie was that? Was that Caddyshack? Caddyshack. Yes. I thought you were going to go right into the Bill Murray voice for a second there, but that'll be the so next one. I got one. that going for me. Uh, <laughs> But on my deathbed, I will receive total consciousness. So I got that going for me. Um, I, I, I'll spare you the Dalai Lama uh, story that precedes that. Uh, but, you know, I, I learned the hard way. And um, I'm, I'm a big fan right now of I, I want information. If I and this will sound um, grandiose. But if I cannot change your movement right now or within two to three sessions, I start wondering what I've missed. And one of the things that I could miss is structure because I don't have x-ray vision. These are just for, uh, these are just for reading. Uh, so um, if you remember the x-ray glasses they used to sell in uh, comic books, um, dating myself. <clears throat> so, you know, structure is one of those things you can easily miss. And so, you know, and, and to key in on the, the effect efficiency and effectiveness of corrective exercise. If you are still trying to change somebody's shoulder mobility six months from now, you have failed. Uh, I change people's shoulder mobility uh, in inches and in centimeters, um, many centimeters uh, in the same session. When I start working with people, I, I find the drill that is the right answer for that person. Uh, sometimes that's simple soft tissue work. Sometimes it's T-spine. Sometimes it's more of a posterior approach. There's, there's uh, processes to go through there, but I change movement right now. Um, and I test and retest and to know that I've changed movement. I'm not going to give you five drills for shoulder mobility and then see you in two months. That is wasted time. I try a drill. I see if it makes a difference. Try a drill, see if it makes a difference. If I've identified a weak link, I'm going to stay, I'm going to read, I'm going to look at that every session until I know it's changed without any corrective work, without any prep, anything like that. Um, so corrective exercise should be efficient. And if you're still trying to fix your movement, even a month from now, you're on the wrong thing. You miss something or you're not applying the drills correctly, or you're doing this. This will be a nice segue into the next section on programming, or you're simply undoing all of your good work by being on a bad program yeah, or having so, a lot of lifestyle issues. Absolutely. So, you know, one thing I want to say before we jump into programming is, um, you know, a lot of times people are bone on bone and uh, you cannot stretch or mobilize your way out of that. What? Now, there are some really, really good clinicians that can give you a little bit of space to work with, depending on what technique technique that they use, but it's not going to, it's not going to change things dramatically. It'll probably maybe help a little bit, but um, there's really only two ways that you can fix uh, a joint that's bone on bone. And, and that's with a doctor or maybe a traumatic event, <laughs> like a car accident, because um, those are the only ways the bones are actually going to move, right? Because, um, you know, you try to keep on banging away and improving that, that internal hip rotation and it's not happening. You're just going to piss a lot of things off. 
And that's really what's going to happen. And then you're going to get a bunch of inflammation and then it's just going to be this, this cycle of trying to figure out what's going on. And then you're going to be going with the NSAIDs and then the cortisone injections. And then, yeah, you're just not going to be able to fix certain things. And, and I think that's a big part of it is just understand that, you know what, you know, I know we're all the gurus out there can fix everybody, but guess what guys, there's just going to be certain scenarios where you just can't fix things. And then you have to work around it. Like you said, with an ankle, it's a heel lift. Right. And, and, and here's the thing, depending on what you're asking of your body, using props like an ankle, uh, like a, like a heel wedge, uh, heel wedge for, for ankle mobility is a decent strategy. But again, just think about all the other things you're asking of your body, because you just can't walk around with a heel wedge and do everything like it does. That's not life. So understand that the strategies that you use in the gym to allow you to exercise is one thing. But if outside the gym, you're doing a bunch of other things that are going to bump you up against those restrictions, you need to be smart about that as well. And then, um, you know, again, we're going to talk about programming now, but I think this is the big one, especially uh, for strength and conditioning coaches, because everybody wants to think that they're really, really good at programming. Um, but a lot of people just are not. And uh, the programming can be the biggest the biggest reason why things aren't going well, because too many people, when they do, when they design programs, feel like they're trying to prove something rather than help someone. And I, I just, I, I totally disagree with that approach. Why? Because I've been there. I've tried to write the fancy stuff and it just doesn't work. hundred percent, hundred percent. And, uh, this idea that, uh, um, and, and I'll tell the story again, I've probably told it twice or three times on the podcast already. And Mike's already shaking his head. Um, you know, I was asked on a, on a, I was a guest on a podcast or for a group, uh, of, of people. And, and they said, well, what's your favorite recovery strategy? Cause you have to have a recovery strategy. Now you, you, you're gotta be doing cold water plunges or the, the, the nitrogen tanks and the, the um, you got the leg pumps, you got the, uh, like there's a whole cottage industry that's grown up in this recovery strategies and recovery tools, uh, area. And I'm like, yeah, my favorite recovery strategy is uh, proper programming. Cause if you're programming yourself appropriately, you should recover from the training that you're doing. If you're constantly trying to figure out how to recover from your training, I got a real simple question. I got, or I got a real simple answer. Half. <laughs> let's just, let's just chop it in half. And let's see how you feel runners you know, runners are big for this. Um, and, and runners it's pure jealousy on my part. I, I, it's, it's, I pick on runners because I'm jealous. So let's just throw that out there. I'll be really honest. Um, but what you see from runners is typically just mileage too much mileage and, and mileage that you're not ready for that you start compensating your way around. And all of a sudden you've got five different moving issues. And the answer is <clears throat> half. Yeah. Like the Joker in uh, the dark night. How much you want? Um, half. <laughs> the movie quotes are, are, are live today. They're very, very live. Um, let's talk about that. Do, for I, a second. do I look like a guy with a plan? <laughs> That's a great, great. I got to go back and watch that again, by the way. Um, awesome. So, so let's talk about that for a second. So I think one of the biggest issues with runners is first of all, they start off and they think they need to start off with like a 5k. <laughs> and I'm like, maybe you should just start off with like, I tell people if they want to start running, I was like, I want you to run for a minute and then walk for two and just maybe do that for like, I'm serious, five to eight minutes. 
like, and they're like, what? I'm like, yeah, because if you go out and do 30, you're going to call me and go, my back hurts, my knees hurt and my hips hurt because you already overshot it. But that's the problem with running is everybody thinks running is accessible. So they just go out and do it. But you would never see so, someone go in the gym and put 300 pounds on the bar and go, well, let's see how it goes. Like they can't. That's the problem with strength training, right? It's not a problem per se, but people think that for some reason, when it comes to like running or cycling or something like that, they can just go out and do it. But you can't, you have to, there's some boxes that need to be checked beforehand. And, uh, you know, that's the stuff that it just, it's again, to me, it's common sense, but, um, as we both know, common sense is not too common these days, but going back to the running, um, if you are going to start off with anything, it could be kettlebell swings. It could be running, start off with a little bit and then see how it goes for the next one to three days. And then add a little bit more. Don't double it because everybody doubles it. They go, I did a mile. So, and it's a Wednesday. So Saturday I should do two. It's like, no, you shouldn't. You should do a mile and a 10th. Or I don't care if you want to do it time-based. If you're going to do a, a five-minute run, maybe do six. Just throwing it out there the next time. So um, I think people increase their mileage far too quickly or they, they in, in anything, whether it's you know running, cycling, or even kettlebell swing, they increase their, their volume. And then when they hurt themselves, that's when they, they drop it way back down. And then what do they do? They, they try to start fresh again. And it's kind of like the idea of, of, uh, you know, the hammer, if I'm hitting my thumb constantly with a sledgehammer or even like a small sledgehammer, the, the way to fix my sore thumb is not to get a smaller hammer, right? It's, that's not going to do it for us. It's still going to hurt. I'm still hitting my thumb. What I should probably do is just maybe not hit my thumb with a hammer for a little bit and maybe try to figure out some better tactics so I won't get injured and then go from there. But I, I think this is what happens. People identify themselves by what they love and they're afraid to give it up. They're a runner. And I, I talked about this when I was lecturing the other day, I'm a runner, I'm a power lifter, I'm a grappler. Cool. No, you're not. You're just a human that likes to do those things. Right. So like, it's, it's okay if you don't do those things all the time. And I get it. Listen, I love jujitsu. I'm banged up from it. And there are some days that I probably train that I shouldn't. Um, but I will say this when I go and I train on those days that I'm not feeling so well, I'm a lot better at dialing it down a little bit and just you know, maybe drilling because the old me would just be like, ah, screw it. You know, I'll deal with it later. And then of course I get back to my house or I get out of the car and I look like I'm still sitting. So that's never good, but, um, it, it's tough. I get it. Like we want to do the things that we love, but at the same time, you need to make a decision. Like if you are going to constantly beat the crap out of yourself, just know what you're in for. As long as you know that you're going to be sore, you're going to be tired and you're probably going to be popping Advil. That's fine. That's your decision to make but that's not what I want to do. <laughs> that's, that's not the way that I want to manage my stuff, but you know, uh, to each their own. But I mean, the programming stuff is just, it's, it's so ego driven. Maybe it's ego driven in some cases, or maybe for other people, it's just, they don't have a clue. It's all at one. It's usually a combo. Um, yeah. I, and I, I think that uh, doing what you can recover from. And, and, and again, I'll say it again. If you're constantly trying to figure out how to recover from your training, you are doing too much <laughs> or your life and your lifestyle doesn't support the volume of training that you want to be doing. So if you would like to do that, get after the lifestyle stuff, get after the organism stuff, fix the environment stuff. Um, 
get your movement minimums met and start with half and see how things go. And I think that, um, you know, people, uh, Gray, Gray and the FMS gang, we, we do it all the time. We get uh, people, triathletes, runners, whatever, come in, and we finally get them to cut their mileage in half for a little bit, and they, they don't even need corrective drills. So don't assume that it's not my first assumption when I screen somebody is that, man, I got so many corrective drills to this person needs. My first assumption is, wow, what's going on in their lifestyle? What's going on in the programming? You know, what, what, what can we do that will be high return on investment, but, you know, made simple, possibly not easy, but simple solutions uh, that, that, that will really move somebody forward. And programming wise, you mentioned it, it's the, uh, and I talk about this in my upcoming uh, ebook and, and uh, I've talked about this for a while, it's linear versus exponential changes. Sometimes adding a rep is not a linear change. It's an exponential change. And so, uh, and that's the Richter scale is, is a good uh, thing. The difference between a five and a six on the Richter scale is not um, one. It's a thousand times. It's, it's a massive exponential increase. And you will make some changes in your training that have that exponential impact. Um, I've done it where I finish a workout and I'm like, man, you know, sets of five for whatever felt great. Uh, I've done it with my iron cardio stuff. Do clean press squat. Awesome. Go next workout, go clean press squat snatch with the same weight. And I'm like, whoa, that was not a linear increase. And I actually say that to myself. <laughs> well, you know what? I, and I think no laughter. I, I think talking about, oh, it wasn't that funny. Um, I think talking about, <laughs> I think talking about total repetitions is important because that's one of the things that you talk about in iron cardio is, um, you know, you've figured out this, this systematic approach to, uh, educating people on how to accrue volume in a safe and efficient fashion. And, and some of your workouts, when you tell me the total volume, I'm like, holy cow, that's a lot of volume. It is. But for you, you've adapted and you've trained your body to get to that point. So yes, it's probably maybe a high end day for you, like a high stimulate, uh, like a high stimulus day or a high volume day. But you're also smart enough to know that your next day, you're not going to repeat that. You're going to probably go back and take a step down and do a low volume day. Right. And I think one of the simplest ways that you can approach volume is to use uh, the idea of, you know, wavering the load or undulating periodization, whatever you want to call it, but just if you have a high volume or a high stimulus day, follow it by a low, go to a medium, rinse and repeat. And uh, it was funny. I was thinking about this the other day. Someone asked me about the uh, 10,000 swing a month challenge. And like, what do you think about that? And I was like, I, I've never done it and I'll never ask people to do it. And here's why. Most of the people that want to do it have never done 500 swings in a week, but they want to do 10,000 in a month. So you know what's going to happen? It's there's going to be six days left in the month, and they've got like seven thousand to go, <laughs> and they're going to cram, and they're going to beat the hell out of themselves. But they did the ten thousand swing challenge, and all they have now is a bunch of blisters and a sore back. So like yeah. I, I get it. Like people love challenges, right? I, I get it. There's nothing wrong with the challenge, but if you are going to challenge yourself. You can't start off with running a mile and then expect to do a marathon. You have to incrementally build your body so it can 
positively adapt to whatever you're throwing at it. And when you make these large, large jumps in, in volume, and, and that's the issue is because most people making jumps in intensity is hard because they don't get it, but they understand volume. So that's why I think the 10,000 swings or running is so easy for them to understand because they're not thinking, well, I'm going to do five by five at 70, you know, at 75%. And then next week I'm going to go five by five at, you know, 3% higher. Like they're not thinking that way. They're just thinking, I got to do more, 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 more. And then, and if they don't achieve it, or for some reason they're behind on what they're trying to do, they cram and now they're beat up. Well, and probably talked about this in other venues, but if your only programming option is more, um, you're not good at programming. Uh, cause there's a lot of variables to tweak and there's a lot of different ways to, to accomplish, uh, work, uh, that don't involve just more. And this is the problem with classic calisthenics, right? Um, Hindu pushups, Hindu squats. Um, once you can do 10, you do 20. Once you can do 20, 40. Once you do 40, do hundred. Once you do hundred, do 200. Well, pretty soon you're knocking off 500, you know, to a thousand reps. And I'm sorry. Um, it's just like bending a paperclip, paperclip back and forth. Paperclips are awesome, but if you sit there and bend it back and forth, it's going to break. Yep. So we, we all, have, you know, there's a stress tolerance that if, and fortunately our bodies recover. So if we stress it and we give it a chance to recover, we can repeat that stress and get stronger from it. Um, but if you just do more and more and more and more and more, um, you, you'll bend the paperclip one too many times and something's going to go wrong. So, and you know, your movement, and this is where Greg Rose talks about the movement screen being a movement vital sign, being a vital sign, just like heart rate and temperature and stuff like that. I will pick up a change in that movement vital sign before your body breaks. So let's keep an eye on that movement vital sign. And so as you start to increase your volume and now your movement starts to take a downturn, I know we're going in the wrong direction because I should be able to support your movement and the increase in volume. And if I can't do that, I now must back off the volume and figure out um, maybe it's the fundamental capacity screen or something like that. But now I got to figure out what's the weak link. What's the thing that I didn't improve so that you could handle that volume. Maybe it is sleep. Maybe it is nutrition. Maybe it is hydration. Maybe, you know, back to the lifestyle, the organism conversation. So, um, you know, that movement vital sign can be powerful. Um, and we, we want to keep an eye on that. And, and that's, yeah, that. In a nutshell. Help, I'm in a nutshell. Yeah, I, one of these days we're going to film that one. So, yeah, so let's, let's kind of put a bow on it. Um, when it comes to corrective exercise in general, we, we have to look at lifestyle. We have to see what you're doing day in and day out and how you're treating your body. Um, because... If you haven't dialed in your sleep, your hydration, your nutrition, everything else is not going to go so well. Um, so we've got the lifestyle. We've got correct versus corrective exercise. And, and we really, we talked a lot about that. Um, you know, with corrective exercises, if you can't make some sort of change in that initial session, um, maybe you're not that good. <laughs> and, uh, or maybe, maybe it's bone on bone and things aren't going to change. And obviously that's why we can, uh, we can refer out and, and have medical professionals do what they do because guess what? They have a very, very different education and they are medical professionals. So um, unless you have x-ray vision, 
yeah, you're not going to be able to know what's going on. I mean, there are some really good clinicians that can talk about end feels, you know, a hard end feel versus a soft end feel, but that's, that's more clinical stuff. And, um, you know, I'm not a clinician. I mean, Brett is closer to a medical professional than I am being an athletic trainer, but, um, he's, he's still not doing x-rays <laughs> and, uh, you know, let, corrective exercise in a whole, I just think is, uh, is something that is very, very much a powerful tool if you know how to use it the right way. And most people don't. So give a corrective, see if it works. If it did cool, keep it. If it didn't move on to something else. So it's like a, like a really good chef will always taste their food before they serve it. And, and that's what you should do with, uh, you know, with your clientele, you need to make sure it works or if it doesn't work, because then you'll get an appreciable idea of what's going on. Then you can make a change. And then lastly, programming. I mean, programming is something that, um, you know, people just don't think about. And, and the course that Eric Degatti and I put together principles of program design, and we talk about all of this stuff in depth, probably to the point where you're going to be annoyed. But I mean, we have to, we have to understand that, um, the programming is absolutely going to impact everything that you do, but there is sort of this hierarchy of what's the most important thing. And I actually think that, um, you know, we covered that hierarchy sort of, I don't want to say on purpose, but it was definitely in the order. So that was kind of cool to see, but, um, Brett, any closing thoughts on, uh, on corrective versus correct exercise or corrective exercise in general? Uh, two things, uh, as you, as you've noted, and we talked about it, it should be efficient. You should be able to create change. Um, it should be progressive to the point that you don't need it anymore. Um, now, having said that, there are times where a corrective strategy is a permanent strategy, and maybe that's a joint replacement. Uh, maybe it's me where I sit all day and work on a computer, and at the end of the day, when I want to go train, guess what? I got to open up my T-spine. I got to open up my hips because they've both gotten tight from sitting too much. Um but I, I, I know that I keep it in place. It's very efficient. You know, me getting ready to train is maybe a 10 minute process till I'm done with my first uh, getup. And so uh, it's efficient, it's progressive, and it quote, goes away or becomes part of your movement prep that is unobtrusive. The idea is to move well enough to respond in a positive fashion to the stress you're going to place your body under and then do the stuff that you want to be doing. Um, so those, those kind of things and, and start looking at movement as a movement, vi as a vital sign. And, you know, if you go into the heart rate, if you go into the doctor and your temperature's up, we know something's going on. We don't know what yet the temperature doesn't diagnose, but the temperature is an indicator that, Hey, something going on here. Um, so movement is a vital sign. Love it. Love it. Well, that's a wrap for today. Brett, always good to talk shop with you, buddy. Um, for those of you that are listening, if you like this podcast, do us a huge favor and uh, give us a positive review on whatever platform you're listening. Um, also, feel free to, sh uh, to share this with your friends and family and colleagues. Uh, we appreciate you guys, and we'll see you on the next episode. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, everybody. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, we're going to ask you for a favor please leave us some positive reviews. Be sure to subscribe and share with your friends, family, and colleagues. Thanks again for listening to the Minimum Effective Dose Podcast.